iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The other day, I went to a Snoop Dogg concert. But this was not your typical hip-hop show. Weed smoke wasn't wafting through the air, other than from the very large spliff Snoop was smoking on stage. The crowd wasn't singing along or rapping along with the words. Actually, most of the folks there acted as if they'd been bolted to the floor, with this look of bemusement written across their face. It was like they'd all been looking for a Coldplay concert, but their Uber drivers had taken a wrong turn and dropped them off there instead. But this is what happens when you pay a hip-hop legend to play a conference on data storage. Yes, data storage. Uh, It was a truly comical collision of worlds, not least because the organizers had handed out fake bling as party favors. So you had all these coders and middle-aged executives walking around with gold chains with giant blinking dollar signs on them. Everybody was getting blitzed at the open bar, uh, which was, of course, handing out plastic cocktail glasses with fluorescent lights blinking in them. And then you walk into the main area of the warehouse, where this whole thing was being put on, and there was Snoop. So he's dropping F-bombs, every other word. And meanwhile, you look around, and, and on the walls, there's these giant customer testimonials about real-time analytics and going the extra mile. Um, It made for great spectacle. It also seemed like a pretty neat encapsulation of the tech industry these days. Loads of money and more than a little tone deaf. I did stay for a while, all that said. It was an open bar. Uh, But the novelty wore off pretty quickly. Even if Snoop was giving it his all. I am on my way to meet John Callahan, who's today's guest. He's the founder of True Ventures, which is one of the Valley's most successful venture capital firms. Um, John is perhaps best known as the very first investor in Fitbit, you know, the maker of the trackers you see everywhere. Uh, he put in something like $1.7 million way back when, nine years ago which, when it went public year before last, turned into many, many hundreds of millions. John was also chairman of the National Venture Capital Association. He's been doing this for well over 20 years, so he knows his onions. So today we're just going to be talking about the good, the bad, the ugly of playing the Silicon Valley slot machine, um, which should be interesting because more and more people are predicting that 
we are on the cusp of another big crash, just given the amount of money sloshing around uh, and where valuations have got to. So um, enjoy. So we look for these potentially large markets that are very hard to see. Normal investors in normal asset classes spend a lot of time thinking through markets and products and trying to evaluate that fit. But early stage is different. And the fact is the hold for us, the holding period for us is so long. It takes so long for a company to turn into or an idea to turn into a product, turn into a team, turn into a company that we need to look very, very far out into the future. And the fact of the matter is that's really, really hard. So if we can see a market, it's usually too late. Because by the time our seed company and our great team with amazing technology builds a product, and by the time they get, there will be too many other substitutes in the marketplace. Competition will be very high. So, therefore, as we talk about what we look for, we look for great people in great markets. That's the that's sort of the simplification. Great of, people in great markets, but you don't know what those markets are. Precisely, and we know the characteristics of both great people and great markets for us. But I would say those characteristics or the things that we get excited about are very unique. Almost, I would say, proprietary. Well, in terms of, of your approach and what you think about as a market, quote-unquote. The way we think about it. Yeah, sort of our methodology and our belief system, frankly. Because in the early days, you know, you're making judgments on things that require belief. In the early days, it's art. Later on, it becomes science. But when we're making an, an investment decision day one behind two entrepreneurs that come to us. By the way, we should talk about that system because how those hundreds of things come to us a week are very important to us. The way something gets to us is critical. And so we instrument and evaluate every step of that. But day one, with an idea and a team, you have to believe it's possible. So if I had a very a, an idea that you thought was compelling and I came in here and I just had a sheet of paper and it was me and my friend and we could speak eloquently about it, could that be enough? Depends. <laughs> and by the way, ideas are, it, it, we talk about that word, and it's really not the right word. The better word would be vision or belief. Because that goes back to the market idea, right? Exactly. I need to understand, we need to understand how you and your co-founder envision the future. You need to paint a picture of the future to us, why customers will behave the way they will behave, what trends are going to basically converge, because it can't be just one thing, like people are going to stop using smartphones so we have another something, right? It can't be that. It needs to be the reasons why, you know, what's going to happen once people start using smartphones and what other things are going to come into play and what third thing is going to come into play. And potentially one and a half or two of those may be strong enough to create a market opportunity further down the road. So let me give you an example. We talk a lot about Fitbit, right? But when Fitbit first showed up, you could, you, we were not investing in a pedometer company. Like, that was completely uninteresting. If you, if you surveyed the pedometer market in 2008, it would have looked like, I don't know, 100 or $200 million of retail sales, maybe. There were uh, leading companies made mechanical, some were digital with digital-like screens. That was not what Fitbit was in a pedometer. You had to believe that the combination of smartphone proliferation and growth software and frankly hard other pieces of hardware that were sort of the piece dividend of the mobile device so cheaper everything could create a device cheap enough and easy enough that you would have it everywhere you went that it would be an ambient what we call the ambient tracker and the big aha for that company in 2008 for me was envisioning a world in which your activity basically could be visible so the idea was that Fitbit could make the invisible how much you walked what, how much you slept, how much you ate, that kind of thing, how many calories you consumed, the water you drank, the invisible 
visible and trackable and frankly, actionable, right? So if you could take something that was today all around us, this quote activity of any kind, right? Physical activity and instrument at heart rate, right? Other types of sensors in the body, then you could measure it. Then you could do interesting things with it through software. So again, not a pedometer market, but a market that was comprised of sure there's, you know, there, there are ways to measure the body historically that have been not very interesting, but what happens when you combine sort of the ambient nature of the sensor all around you at all times, cheap enough that you could do that with a connectivity to the, to a basically computer in your pocket, a mobile device, and that everyone would have. And then think about ways, which we didn't even know then, we didn't even have all the sensors, right? But think about ways that those those metrics and things could be actionable so that could improve your health. And you kind of had to believe that personal health would become more personal, which was something that we, you know, believed. And of course, now the industry takes for granted. But back then, even back then, I don't know, maybe not. That was yeah, like, so that's a lot of kind of if, then, if, then, if, then. How often does that work out? Rarely. <laughs> rarely. <laughs> Extremely rarely. You know, the classic thing is one in 10, right? But the truth of the matter is in venture capital of all kinds, somewhere between 30 and 40% fail instantly. Well, not instantly, go to zero, right? So, um, so fail absolutely, I should say, in terms of dollar, right? So you're losing a third to half off the bat. So therefore, one of the things that also makes us very different is our comfort with risk. We love risk. We actually, we're the only venture firm who in our mission statement, we talk about maximizing investment risk. That's our job. Isn't that what all venture capital is? Yeah, it's what we should be doing as an industry. But the truth of the matter is we're not as an industry. What are you doing as an industry? We notice a lot of marginal investment. So, for example, there'll be one successful company in a marketplace, and all of a sudden three or four other venture-backed companies will start up. And, you know, we do a ton in enterprise software and infrastructure as well um, because we think those are very impactful as the whole compute architecture changes. You need better, faster, stronger to deliver the experiences that all of our companies need. But I think we can do better than teen messaging apps. I think we can do better than, you know, so-called bullying apps and stuff like that. I get I get so, somewhat provocative with the industry when, when things like that happen. I was just until recently the chairman of the MVCA. And so one of the things I was pushing during my, my uh, chairmanship was purpose and impact. Like, you know, you can invest in satellites, you can invest in, again, you know, bullying apps, you pick. Right. And I think the world needs us to do the bigger things. Right. There's some really interesting startups, for example, that that, you know, we're not funding. We haven't funded yet, but I love it. They're focusing on housing on building very, you know, high quality, incredibly low cost housing for inner cities. Right. Those are big problems. Right. So, you know, there are also a good ton of great companies focusing on food. And I'm not necessarily talking about the food deliveries for those of us who live in San Francisco and, and, and New York. That's another very crowded market. That's nice, too. But, you know, actually making food in healthy, safe, more efficient ways. So I think there are a ton of big societal health care. Uh, frankly, politics is back on the table now, right? Like, how is news happening? How are we consuming news? How, how are we do you validating fix fake things? news, et cetera? How are elections happening, right? Uh, there's a lot of really important things, I think. And the venture capital industry is we are designed, we're custom tailored to take those risks safely in the capital market. So, so we're, you by gonna, the way, are you going to do invest in election tech? We've seen a ton of that. Really? Well, uh, we're not planning. We don't have anything right in front of us that we're investing in, but we invest in a company that is basically big data analysis for government websites. It's called Live Stories. It's in Seattle. And, you know, they're basically applying best in practice, big data and display technologies and UI technologies and design technologies. And they're selling that to government websites. 
public. What do they? Local, what is the? What state. is the outcome of that? What does it do? The output is it takes all of this data that's stored up in these incredibly ancient data systems, and it makes it understandable to consumers of government, residents in cities, residents in states. So instead of saying, you know, there's that, actually a lot of these databases aren't, don't have access. They're publicly, legally, they're available to the public in a lot of cases, but there's no actual way to extract that information in a, in a consumable fashion. And Live Stories goes in, and you should, I mean, check out the site. It's, it's gorgeous, right, what it does. It'll tell a city, like, where its dollars are being spent and where the population is and where unemployment is. And in very graph, and basically in just what we in the software industry are used to seeing and the um, data visualization. Software. Yeah, high-end data is and, and big data analysis techniques, so they can actually extract things out of it. Sold to state, local, federal governments. Cool wow. idea, right? Very Just cool. like taking. So I think those are, re- we get very excited about that kind of thing when there's these big ideas that, that b- basically we can take the, the learnings and the speed and the low costs that we've learned over the last 20 years in enterprise IT and apply that into different industries. And so we're getting kind of into some of the some of the themes and stuff like that but i think when when we talk about you know big ideas big ideas don't necessarily need to be mars missions and stuff big ideas can be other things that basically provide great value to the world part of the problem is that industries become so big so if you are a fund that manages 2 or 3 or 4 billion dollars and you're getting your 2% management fee and your 20% carry you mean you don't necessarily need to knock it out of the park if you're making 2% you're in, you're out on $3 yeah. or $4 billion. It's an interesting challenge, right? Because the bigger, the bigger funds get, without question, the bigger funds get typically the larger checks they tend to write. So, you know, it's human nature. You have a bigger bank account, you write bigger checks for whatever it is, right? <laughs> That's one. The second thing is that, frankly, they have more, they do have more dollars to move around. And so there are some other projects that get opened up. And I think there's a bit of, yeah, there's a bit of human nature when you have a bigger fund under management, I guess by nature, you're a little bit more sturdy and permanent for a longer period of time, right? You have a larger chunk of capital. And, you know, frankly, that typically tends, as I said before, to take people away from the high risk stuff. That's debatable, though, because, you know, you can put $100 million into something that's very risky, and then you have capital risk. So you're trading, the truth matters, you're trading different kinds of risks. But the net effect is the same relative to true and to our other sort of early stage folks and friends is that a lot of the big firms have just moved up and out of this marketplace. And so the genesis of innovation, the seed in early stage, there aren't, there are a lot of, there are a high number of players, but there aren't a lot of large established firms. So if I'm say a British entrepreneur and I land here, yeah. SFO, and I have a great idea and I'm ready to kind of hit Sand Hill Road where all the venture capital firms are. Is it harder than it used to be, just given that move away from those very early stage ideas? I'd say it's better than ever. It might be a harder time to succeed in building a company because competition's very, very high. But in answer to your question, the great news now is that the early stage renaissance that sort of started in 2005, frankly, we were part of it. We were very lucky to be a part of it. Our timing was great. But in 2005 and six, the early stage was, was declared dead by most of the market. It was too risky. You don't get paid for your risk. Like, there are all these interesting things. We, we now, we all practicing in the industry say, that's crazy. Angel investing's huge. You got AngelList, which is an amazing platform for, you know, connecting opportunities. You've got all these accelerators and incubators, you got all these seed funds. And that's true. There are many, many more choices. There aren't a lot of large institutionally backed funds in that segment. So we are, we are one of them. We are one of the biggest. 
But we think that right now, if you're a brand new entrepreneur, there are tons of choices. One of the biggest tips I've given to entrepreneurs throughout my whole career is tell everyone everything. You what learn. Do you mean? So there's a great myth in innovation that it's all about the idea. And um, in particular, by the way, this is outside of the Valley. Valley lives in a culture of sharing and learning and all that kind of thing. But um, I've noticed that since I've been here. It's you meet one person, I'll, I'll introduce you to six other people. It's all very collaborative. Completely weirdly. collaborative. It's all about the genuinely, I think, with very few exceptions, right? This is a mission-based culture. This is a culture that's let, it genuinely wants to improve the world and do big things and do it together. And so it's much less important to me that I get some little cut or some advantage of something, you know, by, by paying it forward and passing you along to someone who might be able to help you. It's much better for me, and by the way, me being sort of the every person in the valley, to pay it forward and say, no, 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 you should meet this person, that person, because that needs to happen. You need to go create that thing that you have that dream or try. And the other thing too about the Valley is there's no sort of downside to failure. Of course, it's personal, like, oh, okay, there's a lot. I understand. I failed a ton. We all have, but there's no sort of black mark of, oh, you're off the list. We can't, this is not even, in fact, it's the opposite. If you haven't truly failed, then you're less, a little bit like less fundable, right? We want to fund people who understand how hard it is, who understand what it means to fail, who can fail with class, right? Who can learn from the failure and the bad thing that happened and, you know, pick up from it and build on it and that kind of thing. And so there's a lot of that genuinely here in the Valley. And I think that's also quite unique. Yeah. Cause in, in the UK, having been there for a good 13 years, the outlook is noticeably different in terms of that, especially that attitude toward toward failure and also the lack of irony here when someone says I want to change the world and nobody's yeah. like oh come on yeah you know. well because we've seen it happen you know many many times in our careers all around us the people that you know were in the cubicle next to us went on to start whatever it is or joined Facebook when it was young or Google or uh, or Yahoo or you know or there's a, or Snapchat or there are all these examples around us but I think you touched on something really interesting around this cre- so Let's think about the words we use. We use fear of failure. What does fear do? The first thing fear does is shut down options, shut down creativity. The last thing I want is a non-creative entrepreneur. What I really need is someone who is not afraid, right? Who's going to try the big things, who's going to express maximum creativity and their team. And so when I invest in a company, when True invests in a company, the first thing we say is don't be afraid to lose our money. We can handle it. We're designed to do that. This check is less than 1% of our fund. We can lose it all tomorrow. It doesn't matter. What matters a ton is that on this $1 to $3 million, this 1%, we learn everything we possibly can. We leave no stone left unturned, no idea left unexplored by you, by your team, by the ecosystem. Getting back for a second to this tell everyone everything because I think it's such a critical point, right? How can you learn the most? You learn the most by sharing your idea and having other people say, I think that's the stupidest thing ever. You know, I love it when people say we're crazy or dumb, which, by the way, it happens a ton for this firm and my team. And because we do crazy stuff. We're in satellites. We're in Fitbits. We funded Peloton. We funded Ring. Connected doorbell. Everyone said, oh, nobody needs that. Well, oh, you're behind Ring. Absolutely. We're the largest oh, investor in cool. Ring. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna, 
from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Do you have any spectacular failures, you know, that really kind of stick out like, oh, we really thought this was going to be the next thing? How much time do we have in this (laughs) podcast? (laughs) (laughs) I can do spectacular and I can also just do sheer numbers. We lose all the time. You're smiling when you say that. It's part of the, you got to be good at it. You know, like this is a business where ego is not a good thing. Right. That also seems to run counter to this whole idea of the kind of the Silicon Valley masters of the universe. You know, I'm going to kind of walk through this, walk into the room and yeah. show you guys what's going That's what. rare here. It exists. There's no, I mean, there's no question like any other industry, there are certain groups, certain people, whatever, but I think it's rare. People may not suffer, you know, low performance or, you know, people don't suffer fools particularly well, that kind of thing, right? There's a very high sort of bar, or I should say high performance bar, right? Everyone, everyone here is working like crazy to do whatever it is they want to do. But no, I think if you have ego in this business, you'd spend all your time worried about why you're failing all the time. And the reality is that is part of trying big things. And the trick is getting up metaphorically the next day or literally the next day and figuring out what you want to do. I have so many great examples of that, by the way, where out of the ashes have, have come really phenomenal things. And we have a mantra at our firm to lose money with class. And we mean that, right? Which is that if you have a team and this company's not going to work out, we first focus on the team, their families, healthcare, telling people early, you know, we've got almost 200 investments and a big ecosystem. And so we can usually find opportunities, maybe maybe not secure jobs. We can usually find opportunities within the portfolio. So we try and be very, very aggressive about losing money with class. Because again, it's, if you're in this business, the sheer number of times you lose outweigh the number of times you win. Take me through like one, like one that sticks out. I mean, because I'm sure, I mean, Ring, Fitbit, those are obviously massive successes. Peloton, yeah. There's always yeah. good reads. It's always fun to talk about the, yeah. the winners. <laughs> MakerBot. <laughs> we, we, so, so. so we were the first investors in the consumer drone category with 3D Robotics, which was a company founded by Chris Anderson in Berkeley. Chris Anderson was CEO of Wired. He's, you know, one of the best minds in technology. He's just a brilliant thinker and futurist and um, and creator, frankly. So great story. Chris was hacking, you know, Lego Mindstorms with his kids on weekends. 
he had a blog called uh, I think it was Geek Dad. Uh, did all sorts of cool stuff, and he started flying around Lego Mindstorms, and he put all his work up on his blog, and he met a uh, literally a kid from Tijuana, Mexico, who said, hey, I can build that. And anyway, so they started with Jordi and Tijuana and Chris here. I don't think they ever met till I don't know, a year or two into the company. They were, we were, they were building drones in Mexico. And some of those details, maybe plus minus, maybe it was six months and that kind of thing. But they basically started this thing, and there were no, at the time, I think DJI was around, but not where it is now. DJI is much more established now. Now, now, now it is. Yeah. yeah. And there's that, that's, I just foreshadowed a bit, yeah. <laughs> dropped a little foreshadow. So, so we were off to the races and true was for, it was the first investor with uh, Chris. And when was that? I want to say 2010 company goes off to the races. It's, it's the beginning of the consumer drone movement. We've got beautiful footage from all over the world. We've got companies using them. We've got, you know, professional photographers, using them. we've got news people using them. They're used in concerts and sporting events. It's just, you know, it was... It so was it was early, a success, or it seemed like it was a success, or it was heading that way. A booming success. We had $100 million worth of orders in the year 2014, I believe. And then... <laughs> and uh, so we built all those drones, and we funded the company, and we had phenomenal financing partners, you know, raised a bunch of money, that kind of thing. And the market did, in fact, develop. And, and the risks that we took in the early days were primarily regulatory, we thought, were primarily regulatory. And frankly, the regulations went the way of the industry, certain requirements for you know, registration, that kind of thing, all good. Our company was part of, of forming those regulations, so we were a participant in the marketplace. But the big but was it got intensely competitive and competitive based on price fast. Unique came out. DJI was, was, of course, very, very successful and built a great product and scaled very rapidly and also had venture capital investment. That year at CES, there were 30, 50, you know, a ton, everywhere you went. Dozens and dozens. Of of basically drones. I was going to say clones, but there weren't clones. There was no standard, but of like (laughs) clone drones, right? So uh, of like very inexpensive drones made offshore that could do 70%. Ours were fully autonomous software stacks at very high performance. I, I think we built a phenomenal product. But the fact of the matter is that Christmas channel was just a wash in lower cost alternatives that did maybe 50, 60, 75% of the job. So we had the goods without question, but we were selling that into the consumer marketplace, which overnight became all about price. And was that China? China. So you going know, from zero to 100 million to quite a bit less. Quite a bit less. And now growing. But that's um, all in, what, f- five years? Yeah. That kind of up, down, yeah. gradually back up. Yeah. So the human side of that from both just a leadership and think about how hard that is, right? The company's just gone, gone from zero to, you know, 100, and then you got a downshift quick, right? There's a lot of wear and tear on the gearbox when you do that. So you've been at this for a while, this whole investing lark. You were at AOL's incubator yeah, yeah. many years ago. Yeah, a long time ago. 1995. 1995. Pre-iPhone. Pre-iPhone. Pre, very pre-iPhone. <laughs> so in that kind of in that arc that you've seen the industry develop, getting back to where we are today, has it changed that dramatically in terms of where we are now and the possibilities given cheap computing and cheap storage? Um, yeah, and users. I mean, my short history of my career is um, I started a bunch of companies as a founder and I was in venture capital in, in those early days. And so I lived through the first dot-com bubble. I was an investor in all kinds of companies that went you know, to the moon. I started, co-founded a company that went to the moon, came back down. 
did it come yeah. crashing back down? Absolutely, crashing back down. Um, many things <laughs> crashed back then. <laughs> yeah, it took a lot of non-ego to look through those failures and and see the pieces that you could learn from and move on. And so I stayed investing. I stayed in, stayed absolutely in the business. I believed in it. I believed in the power of innovation. Some of the most interesting times, they were very, very hard, were in those post-bubble years where things were deemed to be over by you know, all kinds of very, very smart technologists and journalists and futurists said that things weren't coming back. But what did happen then is connectivity became pervasive. And again, Moore's Law became cheaper and cheaper to connect to the internet, to connect to the network. Like we forget, those were before that the days of plugging in. So just that, and then, then we joked about the iPhone, but even before the iPhone, there was you could see innovation in mobile connectivity. Oh, by the way, we forgot about one, which is critical, which is information fluidity. So we were the first investors in WordPress in 2005. WordPress is another great big success, oh, wow. and it's phenomenal. And that's, that's all about... What, that's all what everybody uses to publish. Probably close to 30% of the internet is, is published on WordPress. And uh, Matt Mullenweg is the founder, and uh, we met him in 2005. He was 19 years old and had this He's idea. 19 had this idea to pull together this open source community and build a company. And so then were you like, yeah, yeah, this is how this, I mean, where we sit today, 30% of the internet, I presume you didn't see that then. No, what we did see is we saw a phenomenally talented entrepreneur and he had a vision for, I would say my word is fluidity. That's not his, his word, but it would basically be some sort of democratization of, of publishing and democratization of information across the web in truly published authored form and making it easy and powerful for anyone to publish. So here we are today and you have all these unicorns running around. Some of them have started to kind of be reined in a bit and see their valuations fall as they kind of come crashing against reality. Do you think we are in a bubble or on the cusp of another bubble bursting back like 15 years ago? No, but let me just say that unicorn failure is it will happen. It will happen in large numbers, and it's okay. And that should not be, in my view, the sign of a bubble popping or whatever. So I have, so I, I give an unqualified no. We're not in a bubble. Um, unqualified no. No, but there's always failure. Remember, part of what we do is lose. And uh, I have not been a fan of unicorns. I've been very vocal about not being a fan of unicorns. I think valuation. What do you mean you're not a fan of unicorns? Valuation is one part of a company not the defining part of a company. And there were a lot of years, 2014 and 15, where, where many, many unicorns were, what is it? What bread. You, I was going to say bread. crowned or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right. Bread, yeah. <laughs> the only thing that was important to both sides of that equation, entrepreneurs and funders, was, the, by the way, existing, was, was their valuation. And that is not, so there's a funny term in venture capital. When we sell a company and we send a ton of return back to our investors. If we're if we're lucky, we send you know hopefully 10x our money back to our investors. That's the idea of our business. We call that a realization. The money is quote realized, and the thing actual I, cash actual is cash, left cash on hand. Yeah. yeah, cash on cash return. You send it. You you get it from the company. You sell the company. You take it public, and you send it back to your limited partner investors. These are endowments, pension funds, you know, insurance companies, that kind of That's a realized return. My favorite part about that is the word real, okay? It's actual money, you send it back. You can eat realized returns, okay? When a unicorn is created, none of that happens. A new investor comes in and says, this company is worth a billion dollars. They put money into the company. No money comes out. 
and the existing investors go turn around to their limited partners and say, great news. My seed company is now worth a billion dollars. Therefore, our share is worth my percentage times a billion dollars. And they show these really big numbers. Those returns are called unrealized returns, synonymous for not real. We always say here to what we believe you can't you can't eat unrealized returns, right? It's not so it's a it's an interim valuation and that's only successful, by the way, for the founders and employees or the venture capital investors, if and when it transacts at a price way higher than that. So the problem I have with unicorns is I think value, interim valuation isn't that meaningful. It's certainly meaningful in terms of the dilution and the money you raise. So I'd be kidding myself to say it's not meaningful, but it's only one part. There's another problem with unrealized valuations. It marks up your common stock that you grant to your employees dramatically. So a unicorn's a bad thing because your employees now get stock at much higher prices. New people who are hired after that valuation, right? So yeah. they, they have less potential to make lots of money when it goes public. Yeah. But the reason I draw that out is to say that, and this is as my role as the MVCA chair for a while, I was, I was saying, you know, don't judge the venture industry on spectacular high-profile failure. We're supposed to do that. We are the safest place in the capital markets to fail. You want that to happen because out of that comes these amazing companies. And there are some incredibly well-known, you know, unicorn companies that are doing great things for the world. So as long as everyone remembers that failure is part of our game. But back to the, back to the, the, the reality of why it's such an exciting time. So we talked about these layers of different technologies, everything from infrastructure to the connectivity layer to, and we didn't even mention the mobile layer, right? There are all these layers and layers of these broad, what I call broad horizontals, and we're investing atop those. So wearables is another horizontal on top of that, or, you know, the home, right, in general, right? Home security and home visibility, all these sorts of things that we're, we're funding. But then there are these, this horizontal thing, picture it like, um, like layers and layers of, of sort of water and sediment and, you know, viscous stuff in between, they're kind of seeping down and, and oozing into almost every single industry in the world. Every single one. Airlines customer service today, right? There's this great United Airlines example, which is a horrible example. But like, their whole culture is changing because of, again, the ubiquity of camera, connectivity, social media layers, Right, right. Like, so there's a video of the guy getting yeah, beaten up and dragged off the plane. Yeah, it's awful. But like, it has exposed one of the deepest problems of that company's culture. Or it's what's happening in, say, genomics, which is where you know now with big data and compute, we actually really can do some of this longevity stuff. We really can. So try that's how going back to your, what you were saying around this theme of mi- having mission and things that are yeah. actually important to the world it is really interesting this if you just talk about the confluence between really big data that you can do something with cheaply and medicine you know because i was just uh, i saw the other day on tv uh, a company is talking about sequencing the genome for a hundred dollars absolutely will happen and that used to be and before that, it was yeah yeah, before that i mean it was just it's the world yeah it comes down by order magnitude right So yes is the answer that will absolutely happen. So that's, again, Moore's Law creeping into these other, right? Because that's just a compute problem. It's a chemistry problem. It's a compute problem. But then what happens when you can actually throw big data against that? So low-cost sequencing, right? So you sequence everything. So you can, by the way, you can sequence not just your normal DNA. You can sequence T-cell DNA. T-cell DNA is a little bit more of like what's happening to me right now. What's the body doing right now? You can sequence that after you eat a meal. 
You'd see what's that after you, you know, have a cold. You'd see what's that, you know, so that you can actually, and, but that's one thing. So the cost goes down. But the other thing is what do you do with all that data? Because that is a big, huge amount of data. Well, all of a sudden now it's pretty inexpensive to store that data, retrieve that data, transport that data, analyze that data. There are all these tool, visualization tools to show you that data and show what's really happening. And so science is taking a major, it's science probably, but in genomics for sure, we have a lot of neuroscience investments a, as well. There's the biome field as well, which is, has a lot of these same characteristics, but an entirely new set of, of biology right, the biome. And all of a sudden you have things that, you know, we're finding, I was talking about big diseases, right? Diabetes, these huge, you know, cancer, these just enormous diseases that are, uh, that have been so uh, a persistent and, and intractable, really, you know, impossible to, not impossible, but they've been very challenging to get a hold of. We're seeing some really exciting advances there. And those of us in and around it say, look, this is just a, again, this is a compute problem. It's also a biology problem. There's no question there. But we know the way the compute curves are going, and we know the way human ingenuity is going, right? So we'll get it. It will happen. It will happen in my kid's lifetime. If we just examine for a minute the flip side of venture capital, how does the economics work within most firms? And is are there some problems with the way that is set up with this kind of eat-what-you-kill culture and some companies getting caught in oh, this is my company, but if my company does well, that means that guy's company does well, it means less money for me. Yeah. So venture capital is a really weird business, just to put it out there. We are asked to, again, do the, do the terrifying, right? We're asked to put large amounts of capital at risk, typically by, uh, against people that we don't know that well. Sometimes we do. And our strategy at True, of course, is to know everyone we invest in very well. That's a fundamental part of our... But let's just step back. So invest large amounts of capital behind an ambiguous idea and a team that we don't know that well. Oh, guess what? We're committing for at least 10 years. And if all goes well, we'll have to put a lot more money in over time. Actually, the opposite's also true. If all doesn't go well, we're probably going to end up putting a lot <laughs> <Right>. more money <laughs> in over time. And every time we do that, it's one less other thing I can do. It's mutually exclusive. So if I fund, I fund a car company, and then the next day I meet Elon Musk at Tesla, I can't do that one, right? I already had right. So there's opportunity cost in everything we do. There might be a better satellite company that comes in tomorrow. There might be a better genomics, you know, right? So you, so we're in this incredibly hard human problem, right? We're in a we're in a decision makers. What's a good? It's not a decision makers prison, but it's in a trap as a, just a rational decision maker. And then to make it worse, we are usually organized in partnerships where we're all struggling with these same problems and then ego kicks in. Well, I want mine to do well because I want to keep my job because I love my job. It's a great job, but I know I'm going to fail along the way. And then I know my partner's going to fail along. So how's it going to work? So I think the way most funds are constructed don't optimize the creativity or the raw power of their partnership. And so when we started True, we dug deep into a lot of the psychology around things like loss aversion, a lot of the Kahneman work. We dug into, you know, re truly optimized portfolio theory. So a lot of the Taleb, a lot of Taleb's early work around what what kind of, you know, high risk portfolio needs to work. Um, things like endowment effect on the bias side. So we tried to basically recognize human bias, recognize that normal venture capital doesn't actually remove bias, it compounds bias. One example, a lot of partnership votes are unanimous. 
Okay. Required unanimity to make an investment. So you and I are partners. So it's John and Danny venture fund LP. And <laughs> let's do the opposite. You bring in flying robot company and it's the best thing ever. And you went to university with the entrepreneurs and you know, they're great. And I say, you know what? I got burned once in a flying robot company. I just told you a story where I did. Nope. Sorry. We're out. I just displayed my bias from the past right? A fear bias and a failure bias. And I just basically, because we have this unanimity thing. And that's pretty standard. Yeah. Or majority. So you're compounding biases, right? And then we do something else. Again, not true, but just normal investment behavior. At the end of the year, you and I are partners. We're going to judge each other on our returns. How'd you do? How'd I do? Ooh, you did better than me. And these are big numbers, right? These are, you know, seven, eight, sometimes nine figures. Yeah. In the up or in the down. Most of the time, by the way, before you win big as a venture capitalist, you lose a lot. If you're doing it right, it's not like you hit Snapchat on your first at bat, right? You get that, that happens a little later in your career after you've made a lot of things. You know, and I wouldn't say mistakes. You've, you've failed a lot. They're not mistakes. They're just things that haven't you know, worked out, right? That's part of, again, that's part of your batting average. So, um, but what do we typically, as an industry, what do, what do most you know, highly paid professional financial service industries do? They review performance based on a, you know, some short term, right? Public companies every quarter. Maybe it's every year. And venture capital, maybe it's every two, right? I don't know what it is in other firms, but I do know what that dynamic does. Makes me not want to lose. I don't want to lose. And the opposite's also true. I'm going to get you. So you're creating this really weird, you're not talking about- What do you about, mean I'm going to get you? If I lose a bunch of money this year, I'm like, oh, gosh, Danny, we're partners again yeah. in our fictional. Yeah. Right? If you lose a lot of money, I say, well, I want my share to be bigger. Right? You're, you're, you're putting all this bonus or comp or – Or lack thereof. Or lack thereof. So you're putting, you're putting financial reward. You're also putting psychological superiority. There are two really interesting behaviors that have in this business that, again, we've – so I would say what makes this extremely unique is we have instrumented and built a decision-making norm – around recognizing the biases and trying to pull them out of a decision-making process, pull them out of a decision because they're so harmful to actually creating and innovating. Again, think about the earlier conversation. Anytime fear gets involved, we don't create. I don't want my partners fighting against each other. No. Because isn't isn't that the nature of a lot of these firms? I mean, is it a zero-sum game? At the end of the day, when it comes down to compensation at the end of the year, when everybody's sitting around the table and be like, well, my company did X, my portfolio looks like this and yours is terrible. Yeah, so I think there's a thing in venture which is, again, normal human behavior. I just think it's destructive to the greater whole, which is called attribution. My deal, your deal. I think that that, you know, credit and where credit is due, the bottom line we believe is credit is due to the entrepreneurs. Without the entrepreneurs and the founders of these, and by the way, the people who, who take the huge risk and join a crazy idea early, you know, leave a great company, leave a great income with security to join, you know, a venture back startup, right? Those are the real heroes. So we think that's where the credit is due. And I guess I'm trying to not skirt your question by saying that, you know, yes, those types of systems and reward systems and frequency thereof and the methods in which rewards are distributed can be incredibly helpful to creativity, or they can be very, very damaging and detrimental to creativity. Well, to, as it goes back to your earlier point around the mission, this is, inter- industry is what, 50 years old, 60 yeah, years old? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. Are you getting away further and further away from that as it gets bigger, as the, the money that people are managing gets bigger, and as those potential rewards for doing, maybe not taking those big risks? 
maybe just being a bit more safe, but that's enough to make me $5 million a year and I can continue to do that and then yeah. get further away. Well, here's the good thing. It is capitalism. The big winners, the backers of Snapchat, that was a big, bold, scary, risky thing. They deserve it, right? Like that was not an easy call anywhere along the way. And a lot of those uh, investors are friends and I'm phenomenally happy for their success because along the way that wasn't easy. And as I look across at you know our firm's success and as I look across at the success of a lot of others, I think the good news is innovation is alive and well in venture. And there are lots of new models and there are a ton of these new accelerators and incubators and uh, you know, not all of them are going to work, like not all firms are going to work, but some really interesting things are going to come out of those models. They're doing some cool things. It is capitalism and money and talent will follow the bold, I think. I have one more question. You've been very generous with your time. If you had to choose one thing, one big idea that you're most excited about or that we should be thinking, okay, this is what's going to really be a big game changer for, you know, the man in the street. So what's the next iPhone? Two answers. There is a horizontal layer of robotics. What do you mean a horizontal layer? So the way that, you know, kind of Wi-Fi was sort of a blanket over everything or first the mobile web, but then the iPhone we're seeing some incredibly exciting autonomous robotic things that will be everywhere. Everywhere in your home, everywhere in your car, everywhere in your office, everywhere at night while we sleep doing things during the day in your office. In you mean like, uh, like, a, like the robot vacuum cleaners that just go around and clean up that's the house? A great, that's a great example. So, you know, the rise of the machines is, is a common, but that's real. And it's sooner than we think. I think it's incredibly exciting. I think there's lots of interesting, you know, what I've not said is, oh, AI is, you know, AI is super exciting. It's everywhere. It's already happening. But, but I'm, I'm not worried about the big AI. But I think the, the next wave is this sort of literally it's intelligence everywhere and sensors everywhere. That's real. It's happening now. And, and I think that's major. I think it's bigger, frankly, than the iPhone. What comes next is something we think constantly about. Well, I wish you luck in trying to find, to pick the needles from the haystack. Thank you. Yeah. Good to chat. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, Danny. So that's all the time we have for this week's edition of Danny in the Valley. I wanted to thank John for being so generous with his time. And I also wanted to just come back on one point, which is the number of companies that they look at. He reckons that it's about 5,000 total a year that they give a real strong consideration to. And of that 5,000, they invest in, say, 15 to 20 which equates to less than one half of 1%. And I think that's pretty typical for a Silicon Valley venture capital firm. So it's a brutal business. Anyhow, thanks for listening. Go to iTunes. Give us a rating and review. It really helps people find the podcast. And of course, you can read me every week in the Sunday Times, either in the paper or online at thetimes.co.uk. And again, just have a little stop through the iTunes store and give us a rating. It does help. That's all. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. 
You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.